1: We want to hear from you. Please take our 10-minute survey and tell us what you think about our 48 Hours podcast. Visit cbsnews.com slash podcast dash survey. No spaces and all lowercase to take the survey. Again, that's cbsnews.com slash podcast dash survey. We appreciate your feedback and love your support.
2: You don't know for certain whether the gun was opened or the cartridges manipulated prior to that photo being taken. I do not. Didn't have toxicology, didn't have ballistics, didn't have medical records.
3: I was very confident, and uh, 14 years later, I'm even more so confident. And so there's a difference between innocent and not guilty. Um, I have no idea if she's innocent. I truly believe she's not guilty
1: i'm aaron moriarty 48 hours this is married to death part four in march of 2003 57 year old david leith was found dead at his tennessee home of what at first appeared to be a suicide but when the evidence didn't add up to investigators his wife rainella leith was charged with his murder she was actually tried three times the first ended with a hung jury the second trial Raynella Leith was convicted but that conviction was overturned her third trial began in May of 2017 and this time we were in the courtroom and that's where we pick up the story in part four of married to death
2: may please the court Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, good afternoon.
1: As in most murder trials, there's more than one way to look at the evidence. Here at the county courthouse in downtown Knoxville, Tennessee, it's now the defense's turn.
2: Before we can talk about March 13, 2003, we have to go back and understand how we got to that point
1: attorneys josh hedrick and rebecca legrand feel their client has never had a fair shot that she never received any presumption of innocence
2: every good thing she's done every normal regular everyday thing she's done is twisted into some sort of sinister act part of a vast ...complex plan to engineer the death
1: of David Instead of a fair trial, they believe they're up against a decade of presumptions of guilt. Here's my
0: producer, Josh Gaynor. Some of the trial was carried live on uh, television and were plastered across the front page. So their concern was, how are you going to find people within this county who had not in the very least heard about what happened and at the very worst knew these people personally. And we heard during jury selection, there were some folks who, whether their kids went to school with other kids or it's it's not a tiny town, but it's not a big place either.
1: And I think the bigger concern was, okay, you knew her name, but did you also attach that phrase, black widow? And that's all you needed. Her hope for the justice system not failing her a third time is mm-hmm. kind of on us, is on us. Yeah. And that's a terrifying responsibility. She's got hope that the justice system isn't so broken that it won't eventually realize the truth, which is that she's an innocent woman. The defense tells the jury that there wasn't a murder at all. It was suicide. But before they attacked the state's evidence, They first go after the motive. As we've discussed in previous episodes, prosecutors don't have to prove a motive in a murder case. But the defense knows it's in the jurors' minds. So attorney Josh Hedrick suggests to the jury that there was only one person with a reason to kill David Leith, and it was David Leith himself.
2: See, in the year 2000, David gets sick and goes to the hospital. After being discharged from the hospital, he's really never quite the same.
1: They say David was a man whose mind was failing him. He began getting confused and forgetful.
2: He was going to lose who he was. He was starting to lose his abilities. He couldn't work anymore. He struggled with fence clips. Lifetime farmer. Can't do it. It's frustrating. Demoralizing.
1: But David Leith was also a proud man, never wanting to appear vulnerable. He was able to hide his problems from almost everyone.
2: Give us your name, please, ma'am. Katie Butler. Ms. Butler, you're Raynella Leith's daughter, am I right? I am.
1: Rinella's youngest daughter, Katie, was just a teenager back then, still living at home.
2: He just stopped being active. Um, He would sleep in really late. He stopped working out. He just kept to himself more.
1: She told a story of finding David at the house watching TV.
2: He was eating ice cream. He was lifting the spoon up, and he thought he was making it to his mouth, and it was just dropping. So, things like that. Out of character. Yeah. Did he have trouble with uh, confusion?
1: Yeah. Medical records show David was hospitalized several times and began seeing a neurologist. He never told his friends or even his daughter, Cindy.
2: There was something wrong with David's head. The specific type of dementia isn't important. What's important is he couldn't do the things he used to do. And he talked to his neurologist and he knew that this was a condition that was not going to get better. It was going to get worse. He was going to lose who he was.
1: The defense says it was that desperation was that led David to, to do the unthinkable, to take his own life. And with that motive established, the, the defense then focuses on the three shots discovered at the crime scene. We go back to defense attorney Most Josh Hedrick.
2: That each and every one of these shots, each and every one of these trajectories could have been accomplished by David Leith himself. Multiple shot suicides are not impossible, they happen.
1: The biggest challenge for the defense really has nothing to do with trajectories or multiple shots. It's countering the compelling argument from the prosecution that the third shot was fired after David Leith was already dead. Remember prosecutors showed jurors picture taken at the crime scene of the gun's open cylinder showing what they say was the order of shots but was that picture actually taken when investigators say it was
3: one thing we'll do too whenever we put after unloaded here we'll check make sure what the rotation is on the cylinder because that might be important if you have two on the right and it you almost get brought
0: right into the scene because that lead detective Perry Moyers had this recording device with him and turn it on and then go through his investigation. So you sort of hear what he's thinking and seeing in real time.
1: The defense paints a picture of a crime scene in chaos with police and first responders streaming in and out of the house.
0: This happened a long time ago. It was 14 years. So of the two first officers, one is now, who responded to the scene, one is now deceased. It didn't seem like there was a really organized chain of command, if you will. And the defense tried to paint that as a picture. It's like, we don't know if things were found exactly as the prosecution said.
1: So can the jurors be certain that the gun and bullets weren't picked up and moved before investigators snapped that picture? Don Carmen is the state's expert. He's a former agent with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation.
2: You don't know for certain whether the gun was opened or the cartridges manipulated prior to that photo being taken? I do not. And as a result, you're unable to say, and I mean this with all due respect, you're unable to say with any degree of scientific certainty in what order the shots were
3: fired. That's correct, because in my particular discipline, that is, they would be not testable.
1: But even if the state is right, and the shots were fired exactly as the investigators say they were, The defense had an explanation for that, too.
3: I'm Greg Davis. I'm a forensic pathologist at the University of Kentucky, and I was asked to review the evidence in this case as a defense expert on behalf of Ms. Leith.
1: Dr. Greg Davis is a medical examiner for the state of Kentucky. I've known him for years, and I've seen his work on quite a few cases. So I asked him, could someone who was already shot in the head with his brain stem severed be capable of firing that third and final shot?
3: When somebody receives a gunshot wound to the head, they don't, um, unlike John Wayne movies and that sort of thing, they don't just fall down and are still. They actually seize. They have a seizure. So the muscles involuntarily could have been clenching in his hand to fire off a third shot. I'll, I'll give it to you, it's unusual. But to say because of that, it has to be a homicide, I just can't go that far. There is a phenomenon called cadaveric spasm where a person can actually, their hands can squeeze immediately upon death. What would you have ruled this? I would have ruled this undetermined. If we want to say the death was consistent with a homicide, I agree. However, if we want to say, This death is consistent with a suicide. I absolutely agree with that, too. All the term consistent with means is that there's nothing to rule it in or to rule it out. And at the end of the investigation, you just don't know. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused.
1: Okay. Dr. Davis is not saying that David Leith wasn't murdered. He's saying we can't tell for sure and that the manner of death should have been ruled as undetermined, not homicide. Remember, Within 24 hours of David Lee's death, the medical examiner, Dr. Dorinka Malusinik, called it a homicide, even though she had not yet seen records from his neurologist, nor had she received a complete medical history.
2: Didn't have toxicology, didn't have um, ballistics, didn't have medical records. It went from can we figure out what happened, Two, can we prove this was a
1: homicide? What's more, tests showed traces of three medications in David's system, a painkiller, an antidepressant, and an anti-nausea drug. In a previous trial, Dr. Malusinik testified that the combination of drugs would have rendered David Leith, quote, unquote, incapacitated. In other words, she says he wouldn't have been able to get out of bed, let alone handle a weapon and kill himself. But according to Dr. Davis, her analysis was wrong again.
3: You can't predict human behavior just because there's some antidepressant and painkiller in a person. Some people can have huge amounts of those drugs in their system and you might not even know it based on their tolerance. The example I use with my early medical students is, how many times have you been to a class party? And somebody drinks a six-pack of beer and they look kind of normal. You know, they're, they're acting fairly normal. And then there's their buddy over in the other corner who drinks two beers and is a, is a complete obnoxious, yelling, drunk jerk. Well, we, we've all experienced those types of discrepancies, well, the same applies to other drugs that have central nervous system depressant effects. So for me to look at a chart and to say, well, based on that chart, there's no way that person X could have taken their own life or walked from one room to another is just speculation and is often completely wrong.
1: It's interesting to note that in trial it number three, six years Dr. Ago, Malusik did not repeat her claim that David Leith was incapacitated. So to give her the benefit of the doubt, perhaps she just read up on the science and got it right this time. But she was wrong the first time. And her being wrong sent her client to prison for six years. And sent- Defense attorney Rebecca LeGrand is referring to Rainella's previous trial for the murder of David Leith in 2010. Raynella had been convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. And LeGrand believes it was in large part due to Dr. Melusinick's testimony. And LeGrand says it may not have even been the first time that Dr. Melusinick was mistaken in court testimony. She's referring to the case of Elizabeth Ogle, a Tennessee woman charged with murder in 2010 after an alleged lethal dose of morphine was found in a terminally ill friend whom she was caring for. Ogle spent 27 months in jail awaiting trial after Dr. Malusinik, the medical examiner in that case as well, ruled it a homicide. But Dr. Davis testified there too. He said Ogle's friend died from her disease, not a drug. The judge agreed and threw the case out. Dr. Davis is still angry about what happened to Ms. Ogle.
3: And What I saw was an injustice in this case where a woman was accused of murder where I saw no evidence whatsoever that it was even a murder.
1: I was hoping to discuss the Ogle and Leith cases with Dr. Belucinic. But she declined 48 hours' request for an interview. Still, it's clear from her testimony in Rainella's third trial that she still believes that David Lee's uh, death was a homicide.
3: I was very confident. And uh, 14 years later, I'm even more so
1: confident. Dr. Davis, can you say unequivocally that she didn't kill her husband? No, I cannot but there's not enough evidence to say she did.
3: Right, and so there's a difference between innocent and not guilty. Um, I have no idea if she's innocent. I truly believe she's not guilty. So I have no idea as a human being whether she's innocent or not. As a forensic pathologist, at least on the evidence that I've been privy to, there's no way on earth I think she's guilty.
1: But there's more to the case that Dr. Davis was not privy to. If
3: anybody has any doubts as to whether David was murdered by Renoa. Maybe they need to talk to Steve Walker.
2: I see a killer because she tried to kill me.
1: I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours. And that's Married to Death, Part 4. This podcast series, Married to Death, is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio. Judy Tigart is executive producer... Nancy Kramer is our executive story editor. Mike Ville and Alan Pang are the series producer editors. This episode was produced by Josh Gaynor, Lisa Fried and Luis Geraldo and edited by Mike McHugh, Dwayne Tullison, Jamie Benson and Megan Marcus. Thanks to composer Richard Fiocca for his original scores. Gabriella Demergian and Morgan Canty are our associate producers. Kayla Cadell is our production associate. Thank you to Craig Swagler, the vice president and general manager of CBS News Radio. And finally, a shout out to all of you, our fans. We owe it to all of you, the millions of fans of 48 Hours in the U.S. and around the world. Don't forget to join me online. I am at EF Moriarty on Twitter, and we are at 48 Hours on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. See you soon. Support for this podcast
4: and the following message come from Coriant.